Oh, thank you. I've enjoyed the music tonight. Uh, Paul and Kim Vanderwerf ministered to us last. Uh, they're regular, rather new attenders in our church, and uh, that's who they are in case you didn't recognize them. Thank you, all of you who ministered to music this evening so effectively. Let's open our Bibles together, Romans chapter 6, as we focus again at two verses that we covered last week, verses 12 and 13. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Whatever you may think of his politics, the Reverend Jesse Jackson is a man who is able to move audiences by his oratory, his ability to turn a phrase, to repartee, uh, is uh, outstanding, at least among the candidates on, uh, in his political party. And I was listening to a program the other night, and they were asking as to why it is that the other candidates are very reticent to attack uh, his positions or his, his statements. And there were several reasons given for that, but among them was the fact that the others are a little scared of what he may say, because he has the ability to capture something in a phrase and to make it live. My brother-in-law teaches for uh, a high school in the Cincinnati area. It's in an inner city uh, part of Cincinnati. Uh, And on an occasion several years ago, Jesse Jackson uh, went there to speak. Now normally when they would have an assembly, the students were not particularly respectful, did not uh, exactly pay close attention to what the speaker might be saying. But when Jesse Jackson spoke, they were all ears to hear what he had to say. The one message that Jesse Jackson communicated that day, and which they repeated back to him in chants, which caused the whole auditorium to reverberate, was the little phrase that maybe you've heard him use uh, on the news occasionally, I am somebody. Except he didn't say it like that. (laughs) I am somebody. That's how he would say it. And the students were chanting that back and forth, I am somebody. Well, I want you to know tonight that as a child of God, as a saint, one of God's called out ones, you are somebody. You are. You are a new person. You are someone that you were not before your salvation. Notice how the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Would you turn over there with me? He speaks about his his ministry among them. And he declares to them that even sacrificially, he had given himself for them. He says, it is for you, in verse 13. Now in verse 14 he says... For the love of Christ controls us. That word control is from a verb that means to to hold together or to press together. The idea is confinement or restriction. The Apostle Paul is saying that there is something that sets a boundary around his life. 
You know, when that happens, power is created. Some people think that if you can just live the way you want to live, that's, that's power. No, not at all. It's when there is constriction that there is power. You take water out of a bucket, you can throw it and get something wet, but you put water into a hose and constrict it. And then you put a nozzle on the end of the hose and you play with that nozzle, you can get a lot more power and force out of that water than you can if you throw the water out of a bucket. Paul is saying here that his life is under restriction and control. There are boundaries set upon him by the love of Christ. Having concluded this, he says that one Christ died for all. Therefore, all died. He's saying here basically the same thing he said back in Romans. One died for all, therefore all died, because we were all identified with Christ in his death. And he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves. That is, for the advantage of themselves. But rather for him or for his advantage, who died and rose again on their behalf. The person who claims to be saved, but who entirely lives for himself, had better question his conversion. Because Jesus Christ died for us and rose again, and we have been identified with him in death, burial, and resurrection. So that we might not any longer live for ourselves. There's a change made in our life. But for him, who died for us and rose again, Therefore, from now on, he says, we recognize no man according to the flesh, that is, by mere externals. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. What is he saying here? Well, he's saying Christ died and rose again. No longer is he as he was before in his fleshly, earthly body, a change has taken place. He has been raised a new person in the sense that he has a new body, a glorified body, an eternal body, unlike the body he lived in during those years upon the earth. Therefore, he says, if any man is in Christ, now that's Paul's phrase, isn't it? For the saved, in Christ. That's our spiritual position. He says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Just as Jesus Christ is not what he was before when he lived upon the earth. Oh, the same glorious person, the God-man, yes. But he's different now. Resurrection has occurred. A glorified body. So he says there is a change in the person who's in Christ. He's a new creation. He says, The old things passed away. With a a certain finality, he says that. The old things. The word there is the word archaos. It's the word that is the root for our word archaeology. The study of uh, old things. Things that... uh, are from an earlier time. The Apostle says that those things from our earlier time, before conversion, have passed away with finality. 
He says, Behold, new things have come. And the result is that we continue to experience them, he says. New things all the time. We are not the same people that we were before. The new man, the deepest self, the real me, the real you, is perfectly righteous. As Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 24, our nature, our new nature now is that it has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. That's what he says about us. We are created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. That is, our, our real being, our essential us, is brand new. Something that was not even exist, in existence before now exists because we're a new creation. Peter joins with this in 2 Peter chapter 1. When he says in verse 4, For by these, talking about God's glory and excellence in verse 3, by these, He, God, has granted or bestowed to us His precious and magnificent promises, His very great promises, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature. What an amazing statement that is. It doesn't mean that we have become gods, but it means that we now are partakers of the very nature and life of God himself by the promises that God has given to us. Having escaped, he says, the corruption that is in the world by lust. That word corruption is an interesting word. It refers to a slow, rotting process. I think you might agree with me that the culture in which we live has gotten pretty rotten. That's just the way human culture is apart from God. He says here that by lust, by strong, driving passions, the world is corrupting. It is rotting. Kind of an ugly, stinking picture. But he says that we, by the grace of God, we have escaped that. And we, instead of corrupting, actually now are partakers of the very nature, the very life of God himself. What an amazing statement. Because we are saved, that is true of us. We're in Christ. We are new creatures. We are not what we were before. We are what we were not. Therefore, someone says, are you saying that a Christian is without sin? Absolutely not. I am not saying that. The capacity to sin and to choose to sin is still within us. That is clear from the text we have read from Romans chapter 6. Well, someone says, what about the sin nature within us? Well, it may be a matter of semantics or terminology to some, but it seems to me that the, the word nature in a biblical context refers to our essential being, what we really are. 
I think we see that in Ephesians 2, 3, when it says, We were by nature children of wrath. That is a statement regarding the real nature of the sinner. The real essence of him. He is by nature, in his essential being and identity, a child of wrath. Now when we understand nature in that, what I think is a biblical context, we have to understand that we who are saved have a new nature that has been radically uh, changed from what the old one was. In his book, Birthright, David Needham says, if those who use this terminology, that is sin nature, meant by it that in a general way, Christians, because they have not yet received the redemption of their bodies, have a tendency to produce fleshly sinful behavior out of harmony with their innermost being, I would find no fault with the terminology. But he goes on to say, one's nature is not simply something a person has, but rather that which a person most deeply is. You see, there's the distinction, and I agree with what Needham says in that regard. Now, we still have a question. If then my deepest identity, my essential nature is righteous, then from where does evil originate within me? And the answer to that, it originates in sin. That's what the Apostle Paul says. Now let me just review with you what what we studied last week. And that is that the key to victory is in the truth of our identification with Christ in his death and resurrection. And that we turn the key, as it were, in the door and open the door to experience victory by taking three actions. By knowing the truth of our identity with Christ. By considering it to be true. By calculating it to be actual. And thirdly, by presenting ourselves to God and our members as instruments of His for righteousness' sake. Now, it's particularly upon the last part of that that I'd like for us to to look tonight as we think about the fact that every person, every one of us, submits himself to a king who reigns over us. It is either sin, which is still in us, or it is God. Either we yield ourselves to sin or to God. There's really no ground in between that. It's like a light switch. It's either on or off. Either sin is reigning or God is reigning. Now let's think for a moment about the reign of sin. The Bible teaches us that sin as a power Sin as a principle, as a force, operates within our body. That it dominates our bodies if it's allowed to. The truth of our death with Jesus Christ does not mean that sin as a power died because it did not. The believer died, but not sin. Sin is still very much alive within the believer. Keep that in mind. 
The truth of our identity with Christ does not mean that sin somehow died. It still lives. The truth of identity is that I as a believer died and live anew as a new person. But sin lives. It still lives in my body. Notice that Paul does not say in verse 12, Do not let sin reign in you. Do you see that? I'm back in Romans 6, by the way. If I lost you somewhere along the trip. In Romans 6, 12, he does not say, Do not let sin reign in you. But he says, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Notice the distinction between the personality, the you, who you are, your identity, and your body, your mortal body. The emphasis here is upon the temporariness of the body. He says, do not let sin as a power, as a king, as an authority, reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. Beloved, as long as we are in this body, sin will be seeking to employ our bodies, to dominate our bodies, and us through our bodies. The Apostle Paul sees the the redeemed person as a new creature in Jesus Christ, but as one who still has sin in his body. Now we see that, for example, in chapter 7 and verse 18. Just look over there quickly. We'll cover this later in detail, but just look what he says here. I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is, says Paul, in my flesh. He's not thinking about him as a person, as the new Paul, because the Holy Spirit dwells in him. But he is saying, there is nothing good that dwells in me. That is, I mean, my flesh. Down in verse 20, he says, If I am doing the very thing I do not wish, that is sin, I am no longer the one doing it. He says, it's not really me, the new me. I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Then in verse 23, He says, I see a different law or principle in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Notice where he places sin in its operation. It's in the members of his body. He says in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Now, Paul is not saying that the physical body itself is essentially sinful. That is not what he's saying. But he is saying that sin as a power operates within the body. Chapter 8, verse 23. Notice what he says. In the middle of the verse, We ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, i.e., the redemption of our body. In other words, our bodies have not yet been redeemed. Our bodies are mortal. And sin still operates within our bodies. 
And we long for that day when our bodies will be redeemed, when Christ comes and there will be no more sin operating in us at all. Paul is saying that sin uses the natural appetites and instincts of our bodies as a means of expressing evil. I mean, even those appetites that are God-given. The instincts that God has put within us. Sin seeks to use those to express itself in its evil. And that desire of sin to do so sets up a battle within us. Paul describes this in Galatians chapter 5 as a struggle between the flesh and the spirit. The flesh, I understand, to be that pattern of thought, attitude, and action that is left over from what we were before as the old man. The old man himself is gone. He's dead. He no longer exists. But there is a pattern left in me, in my personality, in my humanness. There is still a pattern left in me that the Bible calls the flesh. And sin seeks to use that old pattern. It seeks to use the appetites and the desires of my body to dominate me as the new man. So that sin uh, is expressed and served. Barnhouse gives a tremendous illustration of this. If you would just bear with me as I, uh, I share it with you. It's a few paragraphs, but it, it's, uh, it's catching. He says, One day I was visited by a young man in his 30s who had a personal problem which illustrates the text we're discussing, the same one we're discussing. He told his story somewhat like this. I work for such a company and I have a private office Several months ago, my secretary was absent, and I had to use another girl. One day when she brought papers for my perusal, she got too close. And when she leaned over the desk, she let her hair trail across my face. I fought it down, but after all, I am a man. And toward the end of the day, I put my hand on her, and she came right back to be kissed. Even while kissing her, I was visualizing my two children running to meet me and my wife standing at the door. I hated what I was doing, but I kept on. I had the greatest desire to push her from me, but I kept pulling her to me. My body was doing one thing, and my mind was doing another. When I went home that night, I hugged my children so hard that one of them cried. And when we got him to laughing, I told them that it was because I loved them so much I had tears in my eyes. And my wife's eyes were shining. We all clung together in one of those moments that are indescribable. My wife was supremely happy because I walked around the house that evening touching familiar things that we had scrimped to buy, expressing my love for the home and for her. And before God, I was never more true. Next day... The office intrigue began all over again. I was never more miserable in my life. Before a month had gone by, I realized that my lust and my love were in a terrible battle. When I came home, there was everything that I wanted in life. When I went to the office, the machine of my body seemed geared to something terrible that was purely mechanical and which I wanted to get out of more than any fly ever wanted to get off fly paper. 
I heard my, bo- my wife tell someone that I was becoming more and more a homebody and that all I wanted to do was stay at home. And it is true. I follow her around the house, talk with her in the kitchen where she's working and watch her as she puts the children to bed. This morning when I left the house, she told me that she thought she was the happiest woman in the world because I showed so much that I loved her alone. I could hardly talk. In fact, tears came to my eyes when I lifted a lock of her hair to dry them. And uh, I said to her, I love you more than life itself. And she cried, and I crushed her to me until she screamed and smiled at the same time. Then I ran off to my train. But now, what shall I do? That was the story. Barnhouse continues. With the husband's consent, I called the wife to my office and told her the story. Fear leaped to her eyes, but I reassured her. We took a taxi and went to his office. He was expecting us, and I stood by as they embraced, and she said, I know, I know, I understand, it's all right. Then I called the other girl into the office. The scene that followed followed, typified the mortal struggle between the flesh and the spirit, both striving for the mastery of that body. But the wife was not striving. She knew that the mind, soul, and heart of her husband had never been away from her. She understood the glandular warfare of his body, and that his lust had sprung to life in response to the lure of strange flesh. She looked at him with complete understanding and love. The secretary stood there speechless. I said to her, She knows all about it. She loves him, and he loves her completely. And he has never had any thought toward you except one of animal lust. You were never wanted except physically, and you are not wanted at all from now on. Do you understand? I asked her to wait in the hall while I prayed with the couple. And then I went out and saw the secretary dabbing her eyes, and I talked to her about her need of Jesus Christ. Well, that's something that happened decades ago. Barnhouse's ministry in Philadelphia. But let me tell you, that's as relevant today as it was then. How is it that we can control sin that is still operating in our bodies, seeking to use its natural appetites and instincts? On the one hand, we have to stop presenting the members of our bodies to sin. That's what Paul says. He says we need to stop that. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Our bodies, with all of their appetites, with all of their propensities, their their powers, their faculties, we must stop presenting to sin. And folks, we can do that because of the truth that we have looked at in verses 1 through 11 in Romans chapter 6. What I'm saying is that sin's reign will be no more active in me than I allow it to be. Sin is no longer a master any more than I allow it to be a master in my life. 
As the Apostle says in Romans 8 and verse 13, If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's my responsibility. By the power of the Holy Spirit to put to death what the body wants and what sin is seeking to use the body to do. No longer, he says, should you present or put at the disposal of sin your body and its members. Don't let sin use your body any longer as a weapon against God and against righteousness. But he says, on the other hand, present yourself to God. We've looked at the reign of sin. Let's just think briefly about the reign of God. Just as sin may dominate us, so may God. Sin produces unrighteousness. God produces righteousness. The first thing that we must do is to recognize sin as it operates in us and deal with it. And once we have done that, we need to take a positive step. And that positive step is, in the middle of verse 13, present yourselves to God. Now notice something. Before he said in verse 13, or rather, yes, verse 13, the first part of the verse, he says, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin. But now he says, present yourselves to God. You see the difference? We cannot present ourselves to sin. Because we as a new self or new selves are righteous and created in true holiness. We can present the members of our body to sin. But we can present ourselves, what we really are, as new creatures to God. Present yourselves, who you are now, to God, as those alive from the dead. And, he says, your members as instruments of righteousness to God. As one who is resurrected, and only the Christian is resurrected. As one who is resurrected, you and I can present ourselves and our members to God. The verb tense here is such that it means once and for all. It doesn't mean that we're not going to have to come back to this point many times, even in the same day. But Paul's point seems to be, set your flag here. Say, here it is, Lord. This is the decision I make by faith. I say that I and the members of my body are your servants. And I give you all that I am to produce righteousness. And we set the flag there. And if we step back from that flag at some points, we need to come back to it and recognize that we've slipped. But reconfirm that the flag is here that we are God's servants. We are created, beloved, to serve him. That's why we have died and been raised again, that we might not any longer live for ourselves, but for him and be his servants. Do you remember where we started in this whole study back in Romans 6? The question was, how can we, considering who we are, 
considering the new people that we are in Jesus Christ, how can people like us continue to live in sin? It's incongruous. It's unthinkable. It's even reprehensible to consider that because of who we are now in Jesus Christ, that we should go on presenting ourselves to sin, to serve it. Because we have died to sin. It's no longer our master. We have been raised to serve a new master, Jesus Christ. And we should present ourselves to him and let him be our king. And so I I ask this question, practically speaking tonight, I mean honestly, in the way that it really is in your life, who is king? Who is your king? Is it sin that still operates in your body, your mortal body? Oh, then tonight, renounce that activity as being a monstrosity as being uh, abnormal, as being freakish, for it is. Because there's a new person in Jesus Christ, that is not at all what is in harmony with who you are. But rather tonight, proclaim Jesus Christ as King and Lord of your life. Let's bow together. wonder if you would just like to respond quietly to God where you're seated. Pray to him. Talk to him about who's king. And if sin has been on the throne of your life, reckon with it. Be done with it. And present yourself to God and the members of your body, with all of its appetites and its propensities, present your body to God to serve Him, to live righteously. Heavenly Father, apply this word to our lives. Oh, may it be a living word to us this evening personally. And may the living Spirit of God who inspired these living words cause it to be indelibly written, written upon our hearts. And may we begin to enter more and more and more into the experience of Romans 6. And know, consider, and present ourselves to you as those who have been gloriously raised from the dead to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.